Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. As we've seen over the last couple of months, there's a lot of talk about tax policy, rising taxes, and all sorts of things that are going to be attacking wealth in this country. We're lucky enough to talk to David Lesperance. He is the founder and managing partner of Lesperance and Associates, which is an international tax and immigration advice firm. He's based in Gdansk, Poland, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But we're going to really dive into the concept of citizenship arbitrage, which essentially is if you're a U.S. citizen, what are your options if you feel like you need another place of residence or another citizenship for one reason or another, or even just taxes? At the federal level, U.S. citizens are taxed on worldwide income, no matter where they live. However, with the new regime in Washington and with wealth tax initiatives and other forces of taxation that are being proposed, there seems to be more interest in citizenship options. We see it all the time at the state level, especially in New York State, people looking at other options. But we're starting to see it even more largely with people who are U.S. citizens thinking about moving abroad and taking advantage of other tax regimes. Welcome aboard, David. Thank you very much, Fraser. First of all, before we dive in, tell us a little bit about Gdansk, Poland. How did you end up there? Well, as often happens, a woman is involved who fell asleep on me in an airplane. And when she woke up, I said, well, now that we've slept together, why don't we go out on a date? And (laughs) uh, I find myself nine years later having our ninth anniversary and six-year-old twins. Good for you. (laughs) So let's get back to the citizenship arbitrage concept. Who should be interested in this and, and why? Having an alternative citizenship and having an alternative residence is a bit like having fire insurance. If you have a concern that you may be in something like a wildfire zone, whether that's taxes That may be a problem with gridlock. It may be things like the wealth taxes and Senator Warren on that again, or increases in capital gains, or just wanting to expand horizons. Having an alternative citizenship and alternative residence gives you options. It's also something that is, even if it's not used for a full-blown expatriation strategy, it's a useful thing for multiple generations. I always have to say that my siblings and I didn't go out at night looking for foreigners to marry, but my older sister married a Latvian, my brother married an Italian, I married a Pole, and my younger sister married an Irishman. And I'm the only one of my generation to actually use that second citizenship to move overseas. But all of my nieces and nephews have done everything from a gap year to study to lived in Europe. So they can be quite useful for those types of things. Also for short-term emergencies, I had some clients who had an alternative residence set up, as it turned out, in Canada. When the hurricane hit Houston, they were able to kind of bug out, immediately start life there, kids in school. And so it can be from pandemics to longer-term things like tax, it's always very useful to have that insurance policy. So how prevalent is it? How many U.S. citizens do you see that are moving out of the United States, either taking on a different citizenship 
or renouncing their U.S. citizenship and bailing completely? Well, the numbers that are leaving completely are in record numbers. There is something that's called the expatriation list. It doesn't list everybody. It lists people who have more than two million in worldwide assets or more than an average of 171,000 in tax paid over the last five years. But whether you have 2.1 million or 2 billion, it doesn't delineate between those two things. And so for everyone that actually does an expatriation, I would estimate I probably do seven to 10 families who are equipping themselves with the option. Again, to the insurance, you don't buy fire insurance because you know that you're going to have a fire. You buy it in case you feel that the fire is getting too close and you want to leave. And you realize if you don't have insurance, the results would be devastating. Of course. I was talking to somebody about this topic before and I said, it's funny because you know if there's 6,000 or 8,000 people who are officially renouncing their citizenship a year there aren't that many estate tax returns that are filed and people worried about the demographics of people clearing out of the United States. And I said, well, if I were really concerned, I'd probably devote more time into worrying about how the estate tax system is working and whether you're capturing enough people with that. We talked a little bit about why you would do it. You know, For some people, it's ideology. For some people, it's sort of insurance against different outcomes in their life. And then taxes. Am I missing anything on that? Uh, do people do it for reasons like asset protection or other components? Absolutely. For succession planning. Traditionally, I did my first expatriation in 1990. So over the ensuing three decades, there's been different drivers and different motivations. At first, it was generally an estate tax driven exercise. Estate tax exemptions have been fluctuating up and down over that period of time. So it was people really for estate tax purposes. And then I started to, in the late 90s, started to get masters of the universe, as Tom Wolf would call them. <laughs> and they were more focused on how do I get net closer to gross by Q4 of next year. And I remember vividly one fellow who organized that. And I said, oh, and there's an estate tax issue. And he said, well, if I die, that'll be important. I said, no, you will die. It's an event certain with an uncertain event date. So the focus has been different over the period of time, but other factors such as clearly whatever your political bent is, just the polarization in the United States, the political gridlock rises in civil unrest in various, those are things that for American advisors, they've said, yes, Americans, they've really started to contemplate this. Another thing that was important or that has really driven this, particularly in the last year, of course, has been COVID. So for a typical New Yorker who can't imagine life outside of the island of Manhattan, New Jersey is you know, bridge and tunnels offshore to them. They were driven out of the city by COVID and they were spending time in the Hamptons, et cetera. And they realized, well, they could survive without going to their favorite restaurant or coffee shop or to the Met and, you know, Zoom and different things. They discovered that 
they could reproduce and maintain quite a comfortable lifestyle. And so a body in motion tends to stay in motion and they had overcome life inertia, been forced by COVID. And so they started saying, well, am I really going to go back to the world of Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo who are going to increase my tax burden? And that's why you've really seen a major push of people leaving New York and same thing was happening in Silicon Valley, for example, and going to places like Florida and Texas. Now, that deals with the state and maybe the city level, in the case of New York, level of taxation. And those same people started saying, okay, well, if the Democrats hit a grand slam in November, which they turned out to have done, what are the potential tax policies that could come into place? And wealth tax, there's been a lot of discussion by that. But I think the biggest concern for a lot of my clients is the very real chance that capital gain rates may increase to ordinary tax rates. And if you're looking at a federal level, that's a jump from 23.5% to 39%, assuming they don't increase the ordinary tax rates. So that's quite a leap forward. So if you think I'm going to have to pay capital gains anyway, would I rather pay 23 cents on the dollar or 39 cents on the dollar? I better give myself the option to be able to pay the lower amount should Chairman Sanders convince House Senate Leader Schumer to run this up the hill. So if you're a U.S. citizen, what's the process? I have dabbled in this a little bit with a couple of clients way back when, and it felt like it was thornier and kind of a real mess to deal with. In your experience, and you've gotten lots of clients over the hill on this front, what's involved? So the United States is really the only major country in the world which taxes based on citizenship. So when other countries ask who is a taxpayer, they look at people who spend a certain amount of time, maybe six months or more physically present in their jurisdiction, or who have centralized their mode of living in that country. The United States says, if you spend a certain number of days in the United States, something called the substantial presence test, we will call you a taxpayer, which is technically called a U.S. person for tax purposes. You'll also be a U.S. person if you have a green card, resident alien status, the immigration status, or if you are a citizen. So if you are a citizen, even if you've never stepped foot in the United States, maybe you had a parent who is an American and you were born outside of the United States, you're an American, you're an American taxpayer. And so in order to legally get out of the U.S. tax net, you need to have another citizenship so that you're not rendering yourself stateless. That citizenship may give you some place to live because once you've given up your citizenship, you have to limit your time in the United States so that you don't trigger that day count, the substantial presence test I just mentioned. And so, of course, you don't want to have a downgrade in your lifestyle or you don't want to affect your ability to make or maintain your wealth. So you look at a number of different jurisdictions to do that. You may have the right to live in that alternative residence because of your citizenship. For example, if you have a citizenship from an EU country, it doesn't just give you the right to live in that country. It gives you a right to live in 27 different jurisdictions. And so, okay, I've got another citizenship that allows me to give up my U.S. citizenship. I have another residence, either through that citizenship or an additional residence status somewhere so I can spend time outside of the United States. And for a lot of clients, their fear is, oh, I can't come back in. Not a problem. In the several hundred I've done over those three decades, I've never had a client 
been refused entry or if they need a visa, and that's a function of what citizenship they have or what passport they have, who've been able to get anything from a maximum. I tell clients, it's almost like Homeland Security is saying, come on in. And the IRS is behind them whispering, and we hope you stay too long. (laughs) And so it's really getting clients to really understand what's involved, what are the tax benefits of these things, and we look at what are the hard numbers. Does this make sense? And then we look at the soft issues. Do you feel comfortable doing that? And when we're looking at a family, in all those times, I think I've only had once when I had both spouses expatriated. It's usually one person leaves, the rest of the family stay as a U.S. person, but that person takes the family wealth outside of the U.S. tax net. And so it's really kind of understanding and overcoming some of the myths and really understanding the process. Now, from a tax point of view, lots of people still remember something called the 10-year rule. Well, that's been gone for well over a decade, decade and a half now. And it's been replaced by a mark-to-market capital gains deemed disposition. So what happens now is that if you expatriate, you renounce your citizenship, or if you give up that long-term resident alien status and you cease to be a U.S. person for tax purposes, you're deemed to have sold at fair market value your worldwide assets the day before. You're entitled to things such as principal residence exemptions. You have different capital gains rates, for example, for short-term or long-term capital gains. You calculate all those, you get your 600,000 exemption, and you come up with what the actual number is. Now, an interesting thing that has happened is I had a number of clients who were Silicon Valley founders whose cost basis was a dollar and their shares were IPOing, let's say $51. So they had $50 in capital gain. They triggered that they expatriated after January 1st, but before the inauguration. What that meant was they fixed their tax bill amount in January of 2021, they will spend all of this year selling shares because they'll have things like lockups and it'll take time and they of course don't want to sell it all in one day. They'll spend all of this year kind of getting liquid and they will actually pay that bill in April of 2022. And so it's understanding the, the impacts and the flows of all that upfront And the case is either made to, should I be doing this or why aren't I doing this? So it sounds a little bit from a calculation standpoint, it's a little bit like an IRA conversion calculation. Am I I paying the tax now for a future benefit, meaning a future use of my assets for a better tax regime? Exactly. And so for these clients, for example, once they've defined their tax bill, if throughout 2021, there's a pop in those shares they will enjoy that and any future income or capital gain free of U.S. taxes. And obviously part of the planning is we don't want them jumping out of the U.S. pot and into somebody else's fire. So we will make sure that we organize where they're going to, that there's pre-immigration tax planning and there's lots of lovely jurisdictions from as close as Canada to as far away as New Zealand or Switzerland where you can have a much better global annual tax burden than you will have had in the United States. And if you calculate that the average American lives to kind of their mid-70s, 
If you look at Eduardo Saverin, who expatriated when he was in his early 30s, he's got 40 plus years of income and capital gains free of U.S. taxation. And because he moved to Singapore, he doesn't have any other taxation burden on that. The tax that he would have paid upon his expatriation is kind of a rounding error compared to his lifetime tax savings. The power of compounding for him is going to be compelling. (laughs) Yeah. And again, if he wants to invest, I invest in U.S. stocks. I've never been a U.S. person for tax purposes. You don't need to be an American taxpayer in order to do business in the United States, invest in American companies. And so a lot of what my clients are doing is, as you mentioned in the opening, arbitraging between different jurisdictions for lifestyle investment taxes. So once they're out, how do you set up a structure for your clients? Or maybe a better way to put it is, how do you set up their day planner so that they're obeying the rules of engagement and not staying too long in the United States or not tripping on any other wires that are set up to sort of ensnare people within the U.S. tax scheme? So we need to look at a couple of things. So we need to look at the personal circumstances. So if they've sold a for example, a closely held business and the new owners want them to kind of hang around a bit for a few years to kind of pass over the reins, that's going to require them to spend as much time as possible in the United States. So we look at the substantial presence test and there are things that are called counting days. So for example, that may lend itself to setting up in a place like Canada where I have a number of clients. When I lived in downtown Toronto, I could beat my clients from Connecticut into Midtown by flying in. So (laughs) you flew in on Monday, that day didn't count towards your substantial presence test. Of course, New York looked at it differently. New York said, if you take a breath in any one of the five boroughs, that's a day. But for federal purposes, that wasn't the day count. So they went from combined state, city, and federal tax to only having city tax that was quite a good arbitrage for them. So we look at at those types of things. We also look at if you trip the substantial presence test, it's a formula of two years last year and this year, but let's just for the sake of discussion, say it's 120 counting days a year. So you don't include those Cinderella days when you come in or you leave to a contiguous territory like Canada or Mexico. And let's say you come over that. That just raises a presumption that you have become a U.S. person for tax purposes. If you have established tax residence in a country, again, like Canada, for example, which has a tax treaty with the United States, that's a rebuttable presumption. You can take a treaty position saying, no, I'm not a U.S. taxpayer. I'm a Canadian taxpayer. Now, people say, well, Canada is a high-tax country. It's like, well, really? First off, Canada doesn't have gift tax. It doesn't have a state tax. I'm not talking about a wealth tax. Okay. The second thing is Canada allows you to do very basic pre-immigration planning with trust planning, which is probably what you were going to be doing anyway for succession and asset protection planning and leaving the United States, that you can either pay half of the capital gains rate for future capital gains or nothing, depending on whether you've got the appropriate structures. So, oh, well, that's quite a reduction from my current U.S. rate. So you can end up having a very favorable tax outcome in the future without suffering a drop in kind of lifestyle or earning potential. Interesting. I've talked to a whole bunch of people who 
sort of hear the concept of renouncing citizenship and not becoming a U.S. citizen anymore. And there's lots of, in my opinion, baggage around that. But they don't have any particular sort of ancestral home that they're attached to or anything like that. But they're interested in other jurisdictions. So to that end, for those people who are new to this or are trying to make sense of favored jurisdictions, where are the usual places that people think about or go to when they're exploring this? Unfortunately, when people start to look kind of on the internet and they hear about it, they hear about programs such as citizenship by investment in Malta or in a Caribbean island, etc. And that's because a lot of the information that's out there is really driven by commission-based salespeople. The United States for the 19th and the 20th century was an immigration destination country. So large numbers of my clients have some claim through a parent or grandparent or through if they are Jewish to law of return in Israel, if they're Sephardic Jewish, possibly a lineage that may go back to the 15th century. And they have claim to a European or an alternative citizenship. Well, that saves them from having to lay out you know, millions of dollars for a citizenship by investment or hundreds of thousands in the case of the Caribbean. So because I don't take commissions, I'm not paid by a project in St. Kitts and Nevis or by a developer in Portugal, I'm paid by my clients. If there is a commission paid and we need to do one of these things, I, for example, direct that back to the client. So it's understanding, okay, first off, how do I get an alternative citizenship? Do I have the low-hanging fruit of family history, which will allow me to do it? If not, do I have enough time to become naturalized in a country such as Canada or New Zealand or Australia or the United Kingdom or a whole host of countries? Or do I go out and look at a citizenship by investment and what's the best one and what works the best for me? For example, Eric Schmidt, Google ex-CEO, went and it was publicly disclosed, but citizenship in Cyprus. Cyprus is a lovely island, but I'm sure he didn't intend to go to Cyprus. That gave him 27 different jurisdictions to go to, including, for example, Switzerland and the UK, a number of jurisdictions, Italy, that have tax regimes that would greatly reduce his tax should he decide to expatriate. So he's got the tool another citizenship to expatriate. And he's also got a number of choices by purchasing that tool or by having the right lineage that will allow him to live in a number of jurisdictions in the future because he's going to be limiting his time in the United States. You're discussing the concept of that backup citizenship and lots of European options. You know, certainly Cyprus and Malta are the ones that pop up quickly, Portugal as well. In Asia, for instance, hearing about what's happening in Hong Kong, that would probably not be the first place I would jump to if I were thinking about an alternative citizenship. What are the countries there that are interesting? We mentioned Singapore before. Are there other destinations? Programs kind of come and go. Malaysia was a very popular program. They closed it. Austria, very popular program, popular destination for people. New Zealand is very popular. I have a lot of Silicon Valley clients and others that love New Zealand, either because it's a beautiful two-island nation or they're Tolkien fans and they're attracted to Peter Jackson's activities and Lord of the Rings there. That's in Asia. You have to be careful, and there are pros and cons to each place. Singapore, for example, 
excellent for people who are setting up funds or investors, etc. Mr. Dyson from the UK set up his headquarters there. It is an issue, however, with regards to military service for children. You can become a Singaporean in only three years, but they will make you give up other citizenship. Mm. So if you want to have the option of you know, I would just want to have a citizenship in my back pocket. I am not and may never be wanting to give up my U.S. citizenship. Singapore is going to force you to make the choice if you want Singaporean citizenship. New Zealand is very popular because physical presence for my clients in naturalization jurisdictions is a cost. So New Zealand, you can put money there in 10 million New Zealand, which is about 7 million U.S., Locked in for three years. You can do less money, but you got to spend more time there. Three million New Zealand. Most of my clients will go for 10 million New Zealand. You can put in anything from their government bonds all the way to, you know, your own fish and chip shop if you wanted to. There's no restriction or requirement in what you put it in. That's one quote unquote cost. If you're bearish on the Kiwi dollar, you hedge it. The other cost is physical presence. You need to spend 44 days in each of the next two years. You can do it all at one time or you can do it spread over a couple of trips. And so what tends to happen is clients will go one year to the South Island and one year to the North Island, and they will then have permanent residence in New Zealand. They're not tax resident unless they're going to spend more than six months of the year there. And they've always got the option, for example, if they retire or if there's a for example, an earthquake or some major tax change or a pandemic, and they want to kind of bug out to New Zealand, they can get that. If they start spending a lot of time in New Zealand, there's pre-immigration planning they can do so that they'll have a new New Zealand tax, significant tax burden. And after five years, New Zealand will give them a New Zealand citizenship, which gives them the right not only to live in New Zealand, but also in Australia, for example. So it's understanding what the family needs are, and then what jurisdiction or combination of jurisdictions best meets those needs. Right. And I tell people when the subject has come up who don't have that instant connection to a country, it's like, look, first write down exactly what you need the jurisdiction to do before shopping for them, because it gets very complicated and you have to lay out the pluses and minuses of this kind of decision. And it sounds like there's no one perfect place. If there would be, that would be, you'd see a huge flow of people and capital. But even with that in mind, there are some places that are better than others. And certainly a New Zealand or something like that, it's already sort of pre-anglicized. So you don't have much of a culture shift if you were to make that move. And people say, would you ever buy this or would you ever buy that? There are certain jurisdictions which, because of the nature of the product or the program, I instantly dismiss. So, for example, there's an island, set of islands, actually, in the Caribbean called Vanuatu. And Vanuatu offers something called honorary citizenship. Well, in law, honorary citizenship is kind of like being honorarily pregnant. It doesn't produce the desired result. So I don't care if they offered it for a dollar. It's not worth it. So other people say, well, would you ever get a Caribbean citizenship? I have an Irish grandmother. So I'll give you an example of a case we just had where Silicon Valley client 
worried about it's got a liquidity event happening this year worried about capital gains increases that's going to cost him 15.5 million for every 100 million in capital gains he's got an irish grandmother we've submitted that application unfortunately because of brexit everybody in northern ireland and the uk who has an irish grandmother or parent is also applied and that stack of applications in dublin are getting processed you know, his applications are going to be behind those. And if he wants to beat a capital gains increase, he's got to have another citizenship. So we went and did the analysis and said, okay, well, the fastest, cheapest Caribbean citizenship is this. We got him that citizenship within 90 days, and that allowed him to expatriate. So he spent probably about 150000 on a Caribbean passport because of the commission going back to him, but ended up saving significant tax. Now, once his Irish citizenship eventually gets processed, that Caribbean passport will probably start collecting dust in a drawer somewhere, but it was worth spending, think of it as a premium on that insurance policy in order to save that amount of tax. So let's try to peer into the future a little bit here. Number one, we'll talk about legislation in a second, but could you envision as this starts to become, let's call it more popular, although I don't think it's going to become so popular as to be a gigantic threat to the U.S. tax system. Do you see the IRS or other authorities saying, Mr. or Mrs. X, do you have multiple citizenships and Are people going to get on bad lists, I guess, is something that's popped up from a question perspective with clients. And is there even a problem with being on a list governmentally? The risk, I would say, is not really on being a list. There was something called the Reid Amendment, which was part of the 1996 immigration legislation. In those days, it was pre, of course, 9-11. The INS was under the auspices of the Attorney General, who in those days was Texan named Janet Reno, who they said, well, if you've left, you can't come back. And Janet Reno, who had to enforce it, said, well, my staff is telling me that that's quite unconstitutional. (laughs) So the person who had to enforce it was saying, no, I don't think it's constitutional. If you're familiar with how U.S. legislation is passed, it's passed in these giant quarterly omnibus bills. And that particular quarter a major part of that 3,000 plus page omnibus bill were major changes to the Immigration Act. And at the last minute, somebody threw it back in. And I'm sure every representative and every senator read all 3,000 pages in the three readings they did (laughs) in one day at the end. And we all of a sudden found that it had been thrown back in. Now, in order to actually enforce it, you needed to pass enabling regulations, which they never did. So it was a very toothless tagger. It was only attempted to be enforced twice. I got called in on one of those two cases and the State Department dropped it because they knew we don't actually want this to go to court to show that it's unconstitutional. So it's kind of been lingering out there. But as I said, the problem is not getting in. The problem is staying too long. Now, what is real If we look at when Eduardo Saverin came in, then simply Senator Schumer and Bob Casey introduced something called the XEX-Patriot Act and talked about there was a whole bunch of problems with it. It made great television, but you were retroactively making things which were perfectly legal, suddenly illegal and having ramifications, which there's major constitutionality issues for it. 
and a bunch of other things, but it captured the news headlines for about a week or so, died in the first committee readings because it just was not going anywhere, but the purpose had been done. And what it showed was their willingness to try to make it more and more expensive slash difficult to leave. Senators Warren and Sanders, in their wealth tax proposals, one of the things that uh, people pointed out is, well, wealth taxes haven't worked anywhere because people leave. And so they said, well, we're going to make it more expensive for you to leave. We're going to increase it from ordinary capital gains to we're going to increase some special expatriation rate, which they could do. And so, again, just the threat of that is driving people, I better get out while the getting's good. And so that's really what's the list that just came out last Wednesday reflected events in late 2019, which was exactly the time that the wealth tax was catching the imagination of all the Democratic primary voters and those who were the target of such proposals. And we saw record numbers leaving at that point. So the threat, I think, is really that it's just going to get more and more expensive the longer people wait. So Again, as your insurance premiums are good, you don't wait until the fire marshal confirms your house is on fire before going <laughs> to get insurance. So that's why I think we've seen a major increase in clients getting the insurance and reaping the benefits of future generations, you know, being able to go to these alternative citizenship and residence locations and having a bug out location should they want to go for temporary purposes. And so that's really been the freeing of life inertia caused accelerated by COVID and really the increasing kind of threat. And for a lot of Americans, the realization that, gee, I can't just grab Condas Traveler, National Geographic Traveler and look in, oh, this is a nice place. I'm just going to go there. All of a sudden they've realized, oh, Maybe I need a combination of documents because just my American passport is not going to be sufficient for me to enjoy the level of mobility that I used to enjoy. Terrific. David, we've packed so much into a short amount of time. I really appreciate it. How do we keep track of you or how can listeners find you if they want to pursue the conversation further? They can go to my website, which is lesperanceassociates.com. And Fraser, I'll hope you'll put there's a spelling of my name <laughs> or that on your podcast notes. It'll all be in the show notes. Or they can Google me and again, arrive there. We get a lot of advisors who really kind of want to bounce things off of us. And we do that. I do a lot of, quite frankly, free consultations and we figure out very quickly, is there something, can we meet a client's goals? Uh, occasionally my advice is don't hire me and don't hire anybody like me. Sometimes I just had a case where the client was being talked in by one of these citizenship salespeople into pushing into a program and turned out we discovered that they had a claim to a lineage citizenship. So their costs dropped from several million for a multi-citizenship, for example, to another EU country citizenship, which by the time they pay me and the genealogist and the government fees, probably be about 20000 Wow. So that was time well spent. Terrific. And so it's worth understanding that. Excellent. David, thank you very much for coming on. And as I said before, we'll have all of your contact information in the show notes. And good luck in Poland. I can't say the next time I'm going to be there, but you've piqued my interest. It may be worth a trip. <laughs> thank you very much, Ray. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.